couple of times in the last few weeks in this program. We have quoted uh, from a rather pithy author who's a favorite of ours, uh, James D. Eugenia, who had a few things to say about, uh, about Ben Bradley, first of all, and he said some further comments about the post, which, which we did share with you. But, but what better way to expand upon that than to bring the author on and, and to talk about that topic and, and, and a lot more. So it's our pleasure to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, James D. Eugenio. Good evening. Glad to be here. We should note that you are an educator and investigative journalist, but you've currently stepped down from your role of, of teaching, uh, teaching people directly, I understand. Yes, I'm retired now, and I'm devoting most of my time and energy to my writing endeavors, which include my website, Kennedy's and King, and I also have written many, many essays since 2011 for Consortium News. I do want to talk about the man who brought us Consortium News, Robert Parry. We should talk about him at some length because you, you basically worked for him. You put a lot of articles in, in Consortium News, and so I do want to talk about, about his passing. But first, I think I want to pick up where we left off and, and delve into what people are coming away from seeing the post. And as, as a movies go, it's, it's not a bad movie. We quoted from Jefferson Morley, who found, found a lot in it to like. On the contrary, you found quite a bit in it to dislike. <laughs> what did he like? Well, I don't... he used to work for the Washington Post. He described Ben Bradley kind of talking, you know, talking to him directly about things. I don't think he was overly impressed with with Bradley's commitment to, uh, you know, digging out the truth at all costs. Shall we say? Let me differentiate between the movie is a movie, and the movie is history. Yes, I could see how a lot of people could go in there and come away feeling pretty good about that view that is expressed on the screen of what the Washington Post did. Yes. Can I interject in that a ahead. lot of people were, were really impressed. They liked Meryl Streep, who's always very good, and they really mm -hmm. liked the struggle that was portrayed of her you know, uh, trying to succeed in a man's world, something that resonates with today's audience. I actually said in my, in my review that Spielberg very skillfully directed the film. My problem with the movie is that it's a typical Hollywood romance. In other words, that ain't what really happened. To understand why someone like me, who knows a little bit about the Pentagon Papers, would disagree, all you have to do is know this. In the first draft of the script, which I saw, number one, Daniel Ellsberg is in, is in that draft of the script for maybe three minutes. Hmm. And if you can believe this, in that draft of the script, the New York Times doesn't figure at all. Wow. How you could tell the story of the Pentagon Papers like that. I mean, it, and by the way, the reason I got the script was because of James Goodale. James Goodale was the general counsel of the New York Times right. during the whole Pentagon Papers ordeal. When he heard that this movie was being made... He asked to see the, the draft of the, of the screenplay. And when he got it, he went spastic. He said, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> How can you tell this story without hardly any mention of all the New York Times and having Daniel Ellsberg in a hotel room giving Ben Bajdikian the Pentagon Papers, and that's it. That's all he's in the movie for. Wow. That's when they rewrote the script. The best part of the movie, which I think is the opening, which shows Ellsberg in Vietnam, yeah. and then Ellsberg on the plane with Bob Comer, 
and Robert McNamara, and then McNamara's press conference, and then him stealing the Pentagon Papers, and then copying. To me, that was the best part of the movie. Yeah. Well, that wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for Goodale. Good Lord. What then happens is they begin to very much present the actual what happened inside the post in a very one-sided, slanted kind of a way. One of my big objections is that, number one, the characterization of Bradley, and number two, the scene between Kay Graham and McNamara, which is, comes about three-fourths of the way through the picture. I thought that was pretty lame. Bob, Bob, you lied to me. I'm shocked. Shocked. There's gambling going on here. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's right out of Casablanca. The idea that Bradley and Graham were these paragons of truth and crusading for what really happened to us in Indochina, that is enough, you know, if you've read anything about those people, that's enough to, like, you know, make you go to the men's room during those scenes. As I wrote in my review, the reason Bradley wanted the Pentagon Papers is simply because his ambition, once he became executive editor of the Post, and by the way, this tells you a lot about his ambition, his ambition was to be the equal to the New York Times. Yeah. In other words, when people talked about the paper of record, he actually said, I wanted it to be the papers of record. In, in other words, the post right. would be in the same sentence right. as in New York Times. And that's the reason that he wanted the, 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 the Pentagon Papers. Now, as far as Catherine Graham goes, the idea that she was being fooled by Johnson's escalation, and by the way, it's necessary to describe what Johnson's escalations consisted of, because yes. nobody could have missed them. When JFK was killed in Dallas, there was something like 15,600 American advisors in South Vietnam. They were advisors. We did not have combat troops there. We did not have American platoons there or regiments or anything or anything like that. There was in no way an American air operation over North Vietnam like Rolling Thunder was going to turn out to be. Right. I believe, to the best of my recall, when Kennedy was killed in 1963, there was something like from 1954 to about a 10-year period, there was something like 105 fatalities. American fatalities right. in South Vietnam. Now, in this space of what's going to be like 18 months after Kennedy is killed, you're going to have Rolling Thunder, the greatest air bombing operation in the history of warfare, unleashed over North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And you're going to have the beginning of the troop buildup that will eventually culminate in 540,000 American combat troops in South Vietnam. This was all done under Johnson. And this is what makes it so bad, is that Johnson knew he was going to do this months upon months before it was actually done. And he told Kate Graham about it <laughs> because he wanted to have the Washington Post, which was a local newspaper in which all the senators and congressmen read, the mass amount of the populace in the city read. He wanted her in his corner. So he told her about this. There was a famous dinner at the White House in April of 1964 in which he told her 
that this is what he planned on doing. So she knew. And she kept the secret for him. And she basically went along with it and was a big supporter right. of, us, of his efforts in general. So in other words, she knew he was lying his head off during the campaign. And then, of course, he sends her to Vietnam in 65. And she cavorts <laughs> over there with all those generals, including yeah. Westmoreland. Right. You know, what a great job we're doing. Yeah. She comes back. She has this editorial board meeting. Does anybody think we should withdraw? One guy raises his hand, and she goes, you're so stupid. Okay, so, so the idea that somehow, oh, by the, and by the way, there's a quote I left out of the uh, review. Johnson once said in private that the Washington Post was worth to him 15 more divisions in Vietnam because it fortified his position during the escalation. Wow. So the idea that somehow that Kay Graham should say to McNamara, how could you have done such a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I, I had to laugh at that scene. I had actually laughed a little bit when she said that. That is so utterly ridiculous. I could go on. They no. attacked Martin Luther King in 1967 when he came out against the war. This is 1967. There's 400,000 men in, in Vietnam at this time. A sidelight to this whole story about the Grams where that her husband, Phil, probably more than any other person, was responsible for the Johnson presidency in that he was yes. Johnson's biggest backer and right. apparently brokered the deal where he got on the ticket with Kennedy to begin with. That's correct. If I remember correctly, he actually wrote a memorandum to Kennedy, and it was that memorandum that influenced Kennedy to pick him as his VP. So the idea that somehow that Kay Graham was being deceived, that's just nonsense. <laughs> and there's another scene in the film that's very uh, objectionable. When Bejdikian, played by Bob Ondekirk, okay, brings in the grocery bag to Ben Bradley, played by Hanks. Hanks looks at it, and Bejdikian says something like, I always wanted to be part of a rebellion. And then Bradley takes it in to Graham's office, and then he starts taking out all these newspapers that are now carrying the Pentagon Papers, and they begin to celebrate like they've caused this revolution. Right. I mean, really. It's appalling, because the guy who did that was Ellsberg. Exactly. Realizing the post, the post may not be enough. Let's do some more. Right, because when Nixon and Mitchell then enjoined the post after they enjoined the Times, then... Uh, Ellsberg and his cohorts up there in Cambridge, who were on the lam from the FBI, by the way, they began to say, okay, we better start getting these out to other newspapers because we got to get them out before Nixon and Mitchell can enjoin everybody. What happened is they sent them to, I believe, 17 other newspapers secretly. By the way, I should, I got to add this too, because every time Ellsberg did that, he was laying himself open for another charge by Mitchell, because what, what they eventually indicted him and Russo on was theft and conversion. So every time he did that, he was opening himself for more charges, and he was eventually charged with 11 counts. Could have gone to jail for 115 years. He's a guy who really laid his life on the line. Can we talk about Ben Bagdickian as well? He certainly comes across well in the movie, but I think his role was even more important, was it not? Bagdickian knew Ellsberg from Rand Corporation. He had taken a leave to do some study work at Rand when Ellsberg was there. 
And he was there for, I believe, two years, and him and Ellsberg became kind of friendly. And Bejdikian suspected that it was probably Ellsberg who was doing this. So when his friend up in Cambridge, a guy named Dunn Gifford, who's not even in the movie at all, suggested the Washington Post, Ellsberg said, well, maybe I can call Bejdikian. And it was Bejdikian who went up to Cambridge, brought them back. See, what's not told in the movie is that Bejdikian and Bradley had a falling out right after this. That's not really part of the subject, but Bejdikian did not like the things that Bradley was doing. He eventually left the Washington Post, and he left journalism altogether. And he wrote a great book called The Media Monopoly. You know, I'm kicking myself the fact that Bagdikian passed on a few years ago. He was up the road in Berkeley, and I, I never had him on the show. And I feel... Oh, he would have been a great guy. I quoted him many times. We, we did quote from things he'd written, because his work on Media Monopoly, he was so far ahead of his time. Very good book. Very classic book. Let, let, let me say also this. Nixon and, and, and Mitchell did not just go after Ellsberg and Russo in Santa Monica. That was a famous trial that went on for weeks on end. They also tried to nail Beacon Press and Mike Gravel in Cambridge. And Mike Gravel was a senator who Ellsberg finally got to read the Pentagon Papers on the floor of Capitol Hill. So he did... Late at night, he then got him admitted into the record. When nobody was there <laughs> right. to object. Well, that's why he did it, because <laughs> nobody could object to it. Right. All right? And so then he got it into the record. They made him pay for this, the stenography, by the way. Really? Yeah, they did. And so because they said, you cheated, you, you, know, you got us when, when we had our pants down. And he goes, well, how else was I going to get this into the record? You know? <laughs> And so then he had it transported to Beacon Press in Massachusetts, and then they published what's called the Gravel version. Well, Nixon and Mitchell didn't like that either. And so they called for a grand jury hearing that went on for months on end. This is how crazy these guys were. They tried to get a conspiracy charge between whatever friends of Ellsberg they could dig up up there. And I think they did get one Harvard professor who went to jail for contempt. Then they tried to link that ring, who they suspected was helping Ellsberg, to Gravel, to the New York Times. They wanted to nail Sheehan, the guy who had actually taken the papers from Ellsberg. Right. Ellsberg didn't give it to them, to Sheehan. He took it from them when Ellsberg was not at home one weekend. And so they wanted to build a conspiracy case on that also. That's how crazy they were. It just seems nutty today because, look, look, the, the Pentagon Papers, the case took place, the Supreme Court case depicted in the film, took place in 1971. The Pentagon Papers ended in 1968. It's not like they were giving away secrets. It was history. But the problem was it was honest history. It was, as we call it, secret history. It was the stuff the government didn't want you to know. Well, don't you imagine, Jim, that he was, Nixon and Kissinger were a little bit nervous uh, that, that if the ball started rolling, <laughs> people might catch on to what they were doing in Laos and Cambodia? Right. I think that's what they really feared. You know, and, of course, when we did get those records, which Nixon fought tooth and nail to hide from the public, it turned out that he was probably the worst. He was probably worse than Johnson in some ways. So that's the problem I have with the film. In my opinion, 
The only way you could have done this thing is as a miniseries depicting the whole travail of Ellsberg from the beginning all the way to the end, except that presentation would have been much more hard-edged than this movie is. There's one scene uh, which Ellsberg describes in his very good book, Secrets, in which he confronted Kissinger at a conference, I think, at Rutgers University, and he asked him, how many civilians do you and Nixon plan on killing this year in Indochina? <laughs> and what Ellsberg didn't know, but was declassified later, is that they had already discussed this in the White House. And wow. Nixon told Kissinger, you know, the difference between me and you, Henry, is I'm really not that concerned with how many civilians we kill in this war. And Kissinger said words to the effect, well, my job is to try and not paint you as a butcher, Mr. Nixon. <laughs> wow. Could you imagine something, a scene like that on your television screen? And, and that's what a more honest look at this would amount to. So that's my objection to the film. We all want to feel good when we, move, when we leave a movie theater. We all want to be uplifted. But in my opinion, when you have to distort, leave things out and rearrange things like that. And, and by the way, another objection I had is it was really unfair to Bob McNamara. Bob McNamara, if there was our Bob McNamara, there wouldn't have been any Pentagon Papers. That's true. He requested the study. How do we go so wrong? Yeah. So in six, the summer of 67, he's the one who ordered a history of the Vietnam conflict, which expanded all of into China, that went back all the way to 1945. And he said, words of the effect, let the chips fall where they may, meaning write whatever the record supports. And the guy who ended up being the day-to-day -day supervisor of the study, Leslie Gelb, said that not only did he never interfere, he said he invited him over to his house, opened up the closet, and there were reams upon reams of secret documents right there that he gave him. Wow. Because he said, look, this thing has gotten so bad that I know a lot of people are going to try and hide things. So I'm going to give you everything <laughs> that I have wow. right here. It had gotten so awful by 67. There were days that people said that McNamara would just sit there crying in the corner of his office, using the curtains to wipe his tears away. So that's why he was driven to do this thing. I think Leslie Gelb said he eventually employed 91 writers. He had a team of 91 writers eventually worked on the thing. And it ended up being 47 volumes long. If you haven't read any of it, there's an abridged version that's on sale, I think is what the New York Times published. Get that on Amazon, and you'll see how good the Pentagon Papers really is. Jim, we're, we're, we're running a little long on time, so I think what I'm going to have to do is put off our talk about Robert Perry to maybe a week or two from now. One story that pops to mind when you talk about McNamara, I have to share with our audience, is that he knew how bad it was. He gets fired by Johnson. He's shown the door. He says later, well, I wasn't sure whether I quit or I was fired, but he was fired. Yes. But they bring in Clark Clifford to become the defense secretary, and my understanding, famously for what we should keep in mind in American history, Clifford took his chair in the Pentagon and said, I have two questions that I need to get the answers to. The first is, what are our objectives in Vietnam? And the second is, how do we intend to achieve them? And unfortunately for Mr. Clifford and the nation, they couldn't answer the first question. <laughs> Which I think summarizes the Vietnam War right there. You know there. how long those answers took? 
He was there for two weeks trying to get an answer to those two questions. So he also said he didn't read the Pentagon Papers, or he took a look at him about five days before he left office, something along those lines. Right. He got the oral version. Let, let us never forget what he said after that. He, he, he went back to Johnson and he said, Mr. President, I was really wrong about Vietnam. I can't advise you strongly enough to, to get out of there. Well, you know, in a future program, we should talk about how Johnson did decide that if he could make some effort to, toward the peace process, he might get Humphrey elected and salvage some from the whole mess, perhaps. But that was not to be thanks to some chicanery of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. But I don't know if we have time for that today. All right, let's do that. But no, it's a pleasure, Jim. I, I think that people do need to do some uh, digging to find out. Yeah, the Pentagon Papers would be a great place to start to really learn, you know, what the heck really happened in our great national tragedy. Jim, thanks so much. All right. Have a good night, buddy. All right. An item from Politico caught our eye recently. The title of it was, How China Infiltrated U.S. Classrooms. The subheadline was, Even as they face criticism, Chinese government-run education institutes have continued their forward march on college campuses across the United States. Notes the article by Ethan Epstein. Last year, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte made an announcement of, with great fanfare. The university would soon open a branch of the Confucius Institute, the Chinese government-funded educational institutions that teach Chinese language, culture, and history. The article notes that the Confucius Institute would help students be better equipped to succeed in an increasingly globalized world. That was according to Nancy Gutierrez, a dean at UNC Charlotte. But Ethan Epstein notes that the Confucius Institute's goals are a little less wholesome and edifying than they might sound, and that is by the Chinese government's own account. In a 2011 speech by a standing member of the Politburo in Beijing, the case was laid out that, quote, the Confucius Institution is an appealing brand for expanding our culture abroad. That's according to Li Chang-gun. It has made an important contribution toward improving our soft power. The Confucius brand has a natural attractiveness. Using the excuse of teaching Chinese language, everything looks reasonable and logical. The article goes on to note that along with their growth have come consistent questions about whether these, these institutes belong on campuses that profess to promote free inquiry. Confucius Institutes teach a very particular Beijing-approved version of Chinese culture and history, one that ignores concerns over human rights and teaches that Taiwan and Tibet indisputably belong to mainland China. The article does quote The Economist magazine is estimating that China's spending $10 billion a year to promote its image abroad through efforts like cultural festivals, foreign media, think of those China daily inserts that slipped into the Washington Post, and educational exchanges. Confucius Institutes are a vital part of this mission. At any rate, looking at this article, I can't seem to find a number telling me just how many Confucius Institutes they've opened up here in the U.S. of A. They started out in South Korea in 2004 and spread to Japan, Australia, Canada, and Europe. The article notes that 40% of Confucius Institutes are in the USA. But uh, we'll try to get a number for you for next week's program. The article cites a critic of the Institutes, Marshall Solins, a retired University of Chicago anthropologist, who authored a 2040 pamphlet titled Confucius Institutes Academic Malware. He reports that each institute comes with $100,000 for its host college, 
That's in startup costs. And this involves the, you know, an agreement to send textbooks, videos, and other classroom materials for the courses that are offered. Solon says they're kind of like restaurant franchises. You open the kit and you're in business. American universities can continue to collect full tuition from their students while essentially outsourcing instruction in Chinese. In other words, it's free money for the schools. At many, though not all, Confucius hosting campuses, students can receive course credit for classes completed at the Institute. It's noted the Institutes go to some length to obscure their political purpose. Starting with the name, most Americans associate Confucius with witty or cutesy aphorisms. It's likely the centers would be less successful if they were called Mao Institutes. And they do offer a plethora of fun classes, not for academic credit, and often open members of the general public in subjects like dumpling making and Tai Chi. Anyway, if you have an opinion on this, please feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. All right, how about a couple of items from the oddball file to round out today's show? It's now been revealed that some years back, a photojournalist took a photo of then-Senator Barack Obama smiling as he stood side-by-side side with Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan at a Congressional Black Caucus meeting back in 2005, but the journalist kept it hidden for more than a decade to protect Obama. The photographer, Askia Mohammed, said a Black Caucus staff member called him to say, we have to have that picture back, because they knew any association with Farrakhan, who has made racist and anti-Semitic comments, might hurt Obama's chances of making a future presidential run. Mohammed did keep a copy of the photo for himself, which was published in NewYorker.com. And we don't know how much you like Nutella, that hazelnut chocolate spread, but you might be shocked to know that some people like it so much that violence broke out in supermarkets across France a couple weeks back after the Intermarché chain sparked a shopping frenzy by discounting the price of Nutella by 70% from 5.58 to a buck. 75 a tub. One customer said bargain seekers behave like animals as they battled to grab pots of the spread. Shoppers apparently posted photos and videos of brawling Nutella fans on social media, leading the finance ministry in France to announce an investigation into whether Intermarché broke pricing regulations. Reportedly, Intermarché continued the series of promotions that it calls Four Cheapest Weeks in France and last week announced a 70% off Pampers diapers sale, which evidently led to a fight in the store in Metz. Wait, wasn't that a Beastie Boys tune? You got to fight for your right to Nutella? I don't know. That about does it for today's program. Our thanks to Dr. Andy Jones and Jim DiEugenio. This program was produced, as they all are, by Edward McMillan, noted to be a fan of Nutella. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and we will see you next week at the same time.